A couple of years ago, shock jock Howard Stern, he had the seemingly reflexive inappropriateness, was interviewing actor Bill Murray of Caddyshack and most recently the Chicago Cubs. A man whose roller coaster ride of a life has taken him from the highest of highs to the deepest of lows. Bill Murray has seen it all. And through it all, he has maintained this ability to connect with people of all ages, to make them laugh, to make them cry, to be with them. He's able to connect with people, everyone it seems, but himself. Near the end of his hour-long interview with Mr. Stern, while reflecting on how difficult it has been for him to love himself enough to love someone else, Robin Quivers, Mr. Stern's longtime co-host, cut Bill Murray off during one of his ramblings to ask him a pointed, direct question. So, Bill, she asked, what has stopped you from getting in touch with you? Well, what stops you, Robin? He responded. And then he paused and took a deep breath and said this. What stops us from looking at ourselves and seeing ourselves is that we're kind of ugly. If we, really, if we really look hard, we're not who we think we are. We're not uh, as wonderful as we think we are. Is that disappointing to you? She asked him. I don't think so, he responded. It's a bit of a shock, though. But if it's a disappointment, then you've let it affect you. And that's not what you want to do You want to see it and face it in the light. If you let it disappoint you, then you get emotional over what a fake you really are, and that doesn't work. Then Howard Stern, of all people in the universe, added this bit of wisdom. You hit the nail on the head, Bill. The hardest thing in the world to do for anybody, and I don't care who you are, is to confront who you are and sit there and work on it. Even though a lot of good stuff would come out of it, it's just too painful to confront who we really are. John the Baptist knew, I think he knew, that as human beings, we have a deep and legitimate need for an identity, for a sense of self that is grounded and secure and stable. He knew we all need to find a place where we are loved and where we belong. In short, John the Baptist knew, despite all his harsh words, he knew our need for grace. But he also knew that we have a hard time finding that place of grace because we have a hard time confronting, seeing who we really are, which might be why John calls us out into the wilderness far from all distractions, to a place where our identity is grounded not on our merits or our accomplishments, but on the merits and accomplishments of the one who is to come. In a recent interview with Krista Tippett, New York Times columnist David Brooks described his most memorable experience of grace. He was driving home from a show at about 10 o'clock, Ten years ago, it was a late summer night, there was still enough light in the sky to see, when he pulled into his driveway on the summer night, 
Here's how he describes what happens next. My kids, who were 12, 9, and 4, were in the backyard, kicking a supermarket ball high up in the air. And they were running across the yard, kicking the ball, tumbling over each other, laughing, giggling, and shouting with joy. And I pull up in the driveway, and I am confronted with this tableau of perfect family happiness. And the sun is coming through the trees, and my lawn, for some reason, looks beautiful. And so I just sit there, staring at this moment through my windshield. And it's one of those moments, he writes, where reality sort of spills out of its boundaries, and time and life are suspended for a moment, and you become aware of a happiness you don't deserve, which is grace. And when that happens, your soul swells up a little, and you want to be worthy of that happiness. John the Baptist was the last of the great Hebrew prophets, and this is important for us to remember because it connects Jesus to the fulfillment of God's promises from the beginning. Jesus doesn't stand alone. He stands at the end of a long, winding road of those who have spoken to God's promises and God's power. John is a prophet of old, connected to what has come before, but he's also saying something here wonderful and new. Much of the Hebrew tradition operates under the assumption that if we sin, God will punish, and if we repent, God will forgive. But John doesn't say repent or the kingdom of heaven will come near, despite how that thinking might link well with the prophetic tradition. And he doesn't say repent and the kingdom of heaven will come near, which fits well with prosperity gospel preaching today. No, John says repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom we are all waiting for is not coming as punishment for bad behavior or reward for good behavior. It's simply coming, whether we're ready for it or not. It's simply coming like a moment of undeserved grace. It's been my experience that all too often when we feel empty or afraid or alone or grossly unqualified, We interpret those feelings to be proof of some disconnection, some failure of some kind, some internal flaw. And so we wander around searching for God or peace or connection, taking all kinds of paths through all kinds of habits and behaviors, some good, some bad, that take us further and further away from the good news that God is here right now where we are, loving us as we are. Instead of facing ourselves as we are, we wander around taking the winding road, avoiding an honest look at what's inside. And in the process, we get nowhere. But if we stop and breathe and reorient, repent, reorient ourselves to the promise of God's love, everything strangely begins to change. Because we see ourselves as we are, not as we want to be. We see ourselves as we are, and it's okay. As writer Ben Ponder once said, the world is a mess because we are a mess. And we are a mess because I am a mess. And I am a mess because my heart is a mess. And the heart condition of each of us is the heart of the issue for all of us. 
any other agenda, he writes, any other moralistic totem or golden calf half-truth, any other political platform or religious soapbox should receive our careful scrutiny. I recently came across an essay about a woman reminiscing about her father. She said that when she was young, she was very close to her dad. The time she experienced this closeness the most was when they would have big family gatherings with all the aunts and uncles and cousins. At some point at these gatherings, someone would pull out the old record player and put on polka records, and the family would start to dance. Eventually, it always happened, somebody would put on the beer barrel polka. And when the music of the beer barrel polka played, her father would come up to her, tap her on the shoulder, and say, I believe this is our dance. And they would dance. One time, though, when she was a teenager and in a rotten mood, and the beer barrel polka began to play, and her father tapped her on the shoulder and said, I believe this is our dance, she snapped at him. Don't touch me, she said. Leave me alone. And her father turned away and never asked her to dance again. Our relationship was difficult all through my teen years, she wrote. When I would come home late from a date, my father would be sitting there in his chair, half asleep, wearing an old tattered bathrobe, and I would snarl at him, what do you think you're doing? And he would look at me with these sad eyes and simply say, I was just waiting on you. When I went away to college, she wrote, I was so glad to get out of his house and away from him, and for years, I never communicated with him at all. But as I grew older, I began to miss him. One day, I decided to go to the next family gathering, and when I got there, of course, somebody put on the beer barrel polka. So I drew a deep breath, she writes, walked over to my father, tapped him on the shoulder, and said, I believe this is our dance. He turned toward me and said, I've been waiting on you. We often think of Advent as that time when we are waiting for God, and it is part of what we're doing here. We are waiting for God to come. But what if Advent is also a time that God is waiting on us? What if John's call to repentance today is not a warning? What if it's an invitation to receive the gift of grace that allows us to see ourselves as we really are, which, of, of course, is the hardest and most important thing any of us can do. Father Richard Rohr has a great explanation of how one does this, how one receives grace, how one sees his or herself as they are. Not surprisingly, he believes the experience begins in contemplation and prayer. When you go to your place of prayer, he writes... Don't try to think too much or manufacture feelings or sensations. Don't worry about what you should say or what posture you should take. It's not about you or what you do. Simply allow love to look at you and trust. Trust what God sees. Repentance is not about seeing all of your sin in the light. It's about being seen by the one whose impulse is always and forever to forgive us. Repentance is about putting aside any illusion you might still hold on to, that it's through your competence, your dedication, your faithfulness, your kindness, or your goodness that you earn 
God's love or God's favor. To experience God's love and God's favor, we simply have to stop all our wandering and let God see us, really see us as we are. I know this is not easy. It can be hard to be seen. But God sees you, all of you. And God loves you, all of you. And God longs to journey with each and every one of you to a place of love and joy and peace. Grace abounds right here, right now. So repent and believe the good news that love has come near to you. Amen.